Why do people line up at a pasta bar? Is classification a political act? Is football religion? Why do they say fake news instead of propaganda? Why do you wake up every morning and try to recreate the same appearance that you've had in the previous days to be recognized? <laughs> Why? 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 Study religion and find out. Study religion and find out. Study religion and find out. Study religion and find out! Welcome to Study Religion, the podcast from the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Alabama. I am... Professor Mike Altman, your host, and in uh, this is our third episode, episode three, and I thought it was time to tackle one of the uh, most important, most prevalent aspects of academic life, the academic conference. So we have, what we have is two uh, stories, two stories from academic conferences and I was curious what other stories were out there about academic conferences, these things that happen annually that all sorts of people go to. Um, and so I put out a call on Facebook and Twitter for people's best stories about academic conferences. And most of these people are religious studies scholars, so most of them are talking about the um, AAR, the American Academy of Religion, or the SBL, the Society of Biblical Literature. Uh, the two who have a conference together, AAR, SPL, every year in November. Um, I got one from, uh, I'm going to keep these anonymous to protect people, but I got one, this is great, it says, Guy, years ago, uh, when ASCH and AHA, that's the American Historical Association, was in San Francisco, who looked very disheveled, no name tag, kept coming to sessions and sleeping through them, snoring loudly, then would ask pointed but hostile questions during the Q&A. We were never sure if he was homeless or on the Berkeley faculty. I, I like this one a lot. I can't find the photo at the moment, but I walked by a room at the San Francisco AAR that had four chairs with velvet upholstery spray-painted four different colors, purple, yellow, blue, and red, I think, arranged in a circle. All the lights in the conference room were off, but four spotlights were aimed at the back of the chairs. In the center of the ring, there was a mirror with candles on it. Each chair was surrounded by a circle of glitter. No one was in the room when I walked by, and I didn't see a sign listing the upcoming sessions outside the door. I have no idea what this setup was for, but really wish I had been able to stick around for the session. I am, that's, that's an interesting one right there. Um, last one. This is one I think a lot of people who have presented at a conference can identify with. Procrastinating enough that I printed my paper out at the hotel before the session and sitting at the table before realizing the printer ran out of paper before the end. Fortunately, mine wasn't the first paper, so I hastily scribbled a final paragraph while number one spoke so as not to embarrass myself. Always bring your fully printed paper out with you. So, one of the things about uh, conferences that I think is really important is there are moments where the field becomes very self-conscious, the discipline, any discipline, whether it's history or religious studies or literature or whatever, it becomes very self-conscious. It becomes to ask questions about what, are we, what is interesting to us, what are people doing, what does it mean to work in this field? And so it be, they become places of conflict in terms of 
what are the categories that we want to talk about? What are the topics we want to have? What are the conversations we want to have? And what do we want this field to be? There are, there are annual moments of self-reflection. I often like to think about the Academy in sort of Durkheimian terms, the ideas of that French sociologist, Emile Durkheim. And he talks about how the rituals that these tribes in Australia engage in uh, are moments where they represent the tribe to themselves, the clan to themselves, through the sort of symbols that they use. And that's what conferences are. We represent the field to ourselves in the field. So there's going to be conflict. And I talked recently to um, Laura Levitt, who was our Aronov speaker this past uh, spring. She gave a wonderful talk uh, here on campus. And while she was here, I, I wanted to ask her about an experience she had at last year's American Academy of Religion conference. And so I want to play this discussion we had um, and you can go find a blog post where she writes about this, but a moment, a very arresting moment that she had at the AAR. So I went to a panel that was devoted to the work of uh, Michelle Alexander, the author of The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. And, um, you know, she's a quite famous lawyer and activist and Although I was not particularly keen on the kind of Christianness of revolutionary love, I thought, well, this was a one-hour kind of lunchtime session, a major plenary. So I walked into this darkened room and up on the dais, and oh, they had big screens. Um, there was this nice velvet table, and on one end was a um, was the president of the AAR, Serene Jones, who was. Um, 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 an attractive middle-aged white woman um, <laughs> donning a, you know, kind of vel actually kind of a golden velvet or something on this side. And there were two black women sitting on the other side. Um, and it turned out it was, and I just was really going to hear Michelle Alexander because that's what I thought I was doing. Um, but it turned out that um, the session was set up as a conversation between um, Michelle Alexander and another woman. And this other African-American woman, her name is... Um, Kelly Brown Douglas, and uh, she's a professor of religion at Goucher College, and she's also a canon theologian at the National Cathedral. And, Douglas, and Brown Douglas had just written a book called Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies, and the Justice of God, which is an Orbis Press book. Orbis is a... Uh Catholic, Catholic. Culture, right? yeah. yeah. It, they they were known for doing like liberation theology. Right. So it's kind of progressive religious press, right. etc. Social justice ministry. She came out of union. Gotcha. And what I didn't quite understand, there was some banter as uh, Serene Jones introduced the two speakers and the conversation that they would maybe talk about the seminary, and I just kind of blanked it out because I was here to hear Michelle Alexander talk about her work, and. Um, so she starts out, she tells these amazing stories about how she got involved with this. She's, you know, in California. Um, she is seeing, you know, all of these um, young black men who are in the criminal justice system. She tells these amazing stories. It's very, very moving. Well, again, it's a darkened room. There are big television screens, yeah. you know, jumbo screens, because there are a couple hundred people in the room. Yeah. I mean, I would say 400 people in the room. I, I, I can't, I'm not good with numbers, but it's a, not a lot of people in the dark. And uh, at a, and so 
as Michelle Alexander is going on and kind of, you know, talking about revolution, you know, how in order, you can't reform the system, you need to revolutionize it. It's just really so bad. And I'm like, yeah, I'm with you. She's talking about the Black Panthers. I'm like, yeah, this is like, it's making sense. I'm going there. And all of a sudden she goes from revolution and she says, and what we need, the answer is the church. Because there is a community that ought to be the center of that revolutionary change and claims by who they call themselves that they are and that they're willing to have the courage to do that. And that's the faith community, that's the church. And so maybe there's a myth that there is a faith community or church mm -hmm. in America. <laughs> because, mm -hmm. because it seems to me that that's the role. You can rail against the system and call it out and talk about the facts and lay out what the law is, and you can rail against it all. But in the end, it is all sound and fury, um, signifying nothing if it isn't really coming from that place of revolutionary love. If you aren't offering a path um, that is rooted in the recognition of the divinity of each and every one of us and the necessity of building a movement grounded in that reality. It's all sound and fury and signifying nothing. These systems will keep replicating ourselves and nothing in the end will truly change. And that helped to begin my own kind of path back. I turned to uh, the graduate student sitting next to me and I say to him, Crusade. <laughs> That's all I could think of. It's like, oh my God, what happened? Yeah. Uh, it was shocking to me. I was just, I was really like shaken. And then it turned out, I slowly discover, because I hadn't been following M Michelle Alexander, maybe that was my fault, that she had now left her sort of legal position and had become a new professor at Union Seminary. Uh, she's a visiting professor there. So this was, she had found her Christianity recently and that this was kind of her debut. Right. And I, I, I just was really, really shocked. And, and also there was no time for any questions because it was dark in room, it was an hour session. So by the time this happened, there was, and people were amening. I mean, yeah. it was a whole thing. So, so I'm imagining like our undergraduate students who hear this, what's the shocking thing? What was shocking? Because I'm, I'm imagining some of our students and some of our listeners may not know, may, may sense it, but may not get... Can you? Okay, so there are two things. One is that this was this progressive moment, and I think we have... Sometimes people think when they think about public religion that it's only on the right, okay? And they think, oh, you know, it's those evangelical Christians, like, you know, many of the folks down here in Alabama, but... but you know, there is progressive religion, and sort of union is a kind of site of that kind of progressive um, religious position. And what I was surprised and uncomfortable about was, as a Jewish woman mm -hmm. in the room at an academic conference, I was all of a sudden kind of swept into this, or I would say interpolated, like taken over by. Mm -hmm. I was supposed to be a part of this big collective kind of universal message yeah. that was revolutionary and the revolution was Jesus and the church. And I am not a Christian. Yeah. And I am not and when I go to a professional conference in my field, I don't expect to be 
asked to amen a speaker who is who is best known for her work about the new Jim Crow. Yeah. So I was a little shocked by this. So do you think this is, um, was this a unique moment? So in, in the American Academy of Religion or in our field or in this meeting? I, I or think, is this something that you think we see other times and places? Is this a trend, I guess, is one? Well, I think it happens at different moments because of the sort of history of the field. So the field is this kind of mishmash, right? So that for a long time in many places, I'm sure, I think I was talking to some of the other faculty here, for a long time, this department had courses on religion that were only taught by Christian clergy. Yeah. Mostly Protestant clergy for a long, long time until about 50 years ago when exactly. you started that, that's having... What we're marking, that's how we're marking this 50th anniversary. I Next understand. week is the day that it shifted from the exactly. local clergy that were teaching classes to PhDs. Exactly. So um, I know there's this history and, um, and I appreciate what some of those early folks were trying to open up. But it's also marked by a kind of hegemonic discourse, a kind of, you know, author- the, uh, the really real religion is a kind of Protestant thing. And so even when we define what religion is, it's usually defined as privatized individual faith. And, you know, I write about secular Jews and I write about, you know, and, and being Jewish is about practice. Yeah. You know, it's about doing and um if you're a Buddhist, it's about, you know, what you what you do. I mean, it so um so I understand that my field has been that ha- was started by Protestant Christians and that the field itself is always kind of fraught because there are folks who um have normative faith commitments and they can be a part of some of the kind of work they do as theologians. Um, some of them teach in uh, religious identified colleges or, or, or schools of se- seminary schools where actually in order to be tenured, you have to be a Christian. Yeah. Or you have to adhere to certain kinds of practices. And even at Jewish seminaries, there's some of that too, by the way. Like, yeah. you know, you can't be a faculty member for a long time. Maybe it's changed at the Jewish Theological Seminary, which is a conservative movement, which is not conservative politically, but kind of liberal, which is also kind of conservative, <laughs> but it's it's not orthodox, okay? Right, um, yeah. That's important, and it's been a real bastion of Jewish learning, but, you know, the expectation is that you are observant of Jewish law. Um, so not necessarily a place for secular Jews on the faculty. yeah. yeah. And lots of folks who teach Jewish studies teach a lot of different stuff, not always in a religion department. Yeah. But I teach in a religion department, so I appreciate that this is can be a part of things. But I just did not... I knew what the theme was, but I just was not expecting it in this session. It was just shocking. I was shocked by it. And for it to be... I think the shock is doubled by it being a plenary session, so one of these main big sessions, drawing on the overall theme of the whole meeting with the president of the whole thing there. Um, right. So it was, yeah, and this it was, wasn't a side gig with 50 people no, 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 off no. on the this bottom a, of a hotel somewhere. Right, and not only that, I felt like she had introduced them. So, I mean, it's one... So, my other experience, big experience at the AAR where this happened uh, was many years ago when the dancer Bill T. Jones came to the AAR to perform. 
and he thought he was going to a religion conference and nobody kind of explained to him that this was the study of religion and that it wasn't like we want you to create a religious experience. <laughs> yeah. And um, what happened was, and he's like, and I went to that session because, again, he was this extraordinary artist. He is an extraordinary artist who I have oodles of respect for and who I, you know, just admire his work. I think he's a genius winner, and et cetera. But we're in this huge auditorium there, and he's doing this performative thing where he's bringing in the audience. This is many years, maybe 12 years ago, I don't know. And in Washington, and I, I'll never forget it, he was like asking us all to join in it, join with him, like be a part of it. And I was a little younger and I was a little more feisty. I protested. <laughs> I, I kind of got up and I said, uh, not all of us want to join, like, because yeah. it was that, it's that appropriative move that I, that I, I think I personally find very hard. Yeah. I don't like being kind of, cons kind of, taken over by somebody else's narrative. I don't want somebody else to tell me who I am and that I'm a part of this right. big thing that's not mine. Yeah. And it's like, no. I was like, no, I don't want to be a part of this. And I'm arguing with Bill T. Jones in this public setting. It but there was takes space. two to tango. That's what you <laughs> Right, exactly. So I had done that, and I have a friend who, you know, it's one of his favorite memories of me doing this. Um, but I couldn't help myself. But here, there was no, there wasn't even an opportunity for me to say, "Time out." Yeah. Because it was over, and there was no interaction with the audience. And it's 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 interesting. What always interests me about these situations when they come up, uh, I think about when they had the Tibetan sand painting one year, and um, is which practices and which sorts of religion are let in in this way, right? So, no one would ever imagine. Like for example, a couple years ago, they had Jimmy Carter. Right, but you know, uh, when he was alive, no one ever thought to invite, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan, <laughs> or no one ever thought to invite, um, you know, a sort of Mike Huckabee or anyone like that. Um, there's a way that there are certain, or, or I made the joke one year when they had the Tibetan sand painting, which is lovely and all that, but no one, you know, I don't, I've yet to see the the snake handling demonstration outside or, the AAR at the book exhibit. Yeah, or apropos of the. Um, uh, the the Tibetan practice, you know, uh, apparently prayer warriors are very concerned about those, yeah, those Tibetan yeah. practices, but they didn't do a prayer warrior official session. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. you're right about that. There's like, no, you know, we don't have a prayer walk around the conference center. Um, so it is always intriguing to me which the ways that there's a kind of politics to these religious practices that get celebrated and these sorts of voices, which voices are allowed. And, and I mean, that's where I tend, I think, to fall on sort of a, let's just not do any of it. <laughs> like, like, yeah. like, like, I'm happy to hear about, you know, I, I love Michelle Alexander's book. Um, I've actually been listening to the, to the ebook of it. Um, and I, but I, again, like, I, I think I'd like share your thing of like, I came for the, came for the social, the social science, not, um, so you wrote a, a blog post about this that uh, appeared on the uh, Bulletin for State of Religion. I'll put a link in our show notes for those who want to go read it. Um, I'm curious, and it sort of lays out what you've already said. I'm curious what reaction you got back, because it, it kind of zipped around it, yeah, yeah. the very small world of religious studies social media. It sort of zipped around. There were comments on it. Um, yeah. I was curious what sort of reactions you got when you sort of flagged this as, hey, guys, this was kind of unnerving. Yeah, well, well I ran into Matt Sheet 
Sheedy, who's the yeah. editor, not long after, and, I, and he heard an earful from me because I just was like beside myself, and anybody who wanted to hear it would hear it. He said, oh, you should just write it. I'll, I'll publish it. Do you, and, and I had written something else for him in the past, um, but uh, apparently they got more hits. It was one of the highest-read blogs that they've yeah. had. Um, so it definitely struck a chord with lots of folks, and I think it was... The folks who are critical of any kind of norm, you know, any kind of normativizing, yeah, um, like some of the folks in this department, yeah. It also, I think, for all of the minority communities who are a part of the AAR. So, if you do Jewish studies, you do Islamic studies. Right. If you do Hinduism, if you do Buddhism, if you are Sikh, you know, you you also this spoke to you yeah. in the sense that are we welcome here? Yeah. Um, so I think that was a, a, a big piece of it. Um, I did hear from Jack Fitzmeyer, who was very um, respectful. So he's the was he's executive, the executive director, director of the AAR yeah. and said he appreciated that I had um, called attention to this as a problem. And I, you know, I, he didn't have to call me, and I really appreciate yeah. that. I didn't. I never heard from the president of the AAR. Yeah. And I really hold her responsible. I mean in the sense that this was her vision. And again, I think Union Seminary does a really important thing yeah. as, a, as a liberal bastion, as a kind of left um, uh, site of uh, theological education yeah. and has a very important history. But I think what happened in this instance is she kind of conflated her role as the president of that institution and her her role as the president of this professional organization. And I think that it would have been, it, I, and, I, and because Michelle Alexander was new to religious discourse, yeah. I, you know, I feel badly um, you know, kind of going after her because you know, someone should have told her, like there's, the president of the organization. There's a sense of like, she's like the new friend that shows up at Thanksgiving, doesn't know where all the family landmines are. Right, um. <laughs> right. And, you know, and, and I, think, I think that the conversation with its theological turn may have made a great deal of sense at Union. Yeah. In a, in a more sectarian context. Yeah. But it was the the publicness of this under the auspices of this professional organization yeah. that I found very daunting. So what do you, what do you see happening in the future? So next year's theme, next, the new, because the president changes every year, it, next year's president is Eddie Gloud, who, or this coming year's president is Eddie Gloud, who uh, was our r and speaker last year. Um, and I think his theme is something about religion and the marginalized or vulnerability, vulnerability, something like that. And then the following year, uh, the new president will be David Gushy, who is a minister at a Baptist church in Decatur, Georgia, on top of teaching at Mercer, um, where he's a Christian ethicist. Um, so I'm just curious, where do you see? You know, you talked about something that happened 12 years ago, and then this happens. Do you, do you see? Do you see a is it more of the same? Is it getting? Is this an issue you think is going to happen more often, less often? Are we learning from this? I, I I'm not sure. Um, I, you know, I think what Jack Fitzmyer said to me was something like, "Well, I'm not sure if this theme thing is a great idea." <laughs> and you know, I mean, yeah. I think it may have gotten out of hand. And you know, I mean, it, it's not clear what they're going to do. And he, as I say, he was incredibly gracious and respectful to me. I, yeah. you know, I I got 
you know, I, I got this this message saying that he'd like to talk to me, and I was a little nervous. And I was, re I was, I, fe I was very, I, I felt, you know, he was really respectful, and I really appreciated that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think what's because this was revolutionary love. So this is the radical religious left, right? Yeah. A Christian. Left. Although, although I did, I, I feel like ISIS still loves Allah even when they behead people, right? Like if you ask them that, that's a word. Well, so what, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, like I, I, I think know. the love thing. I don't know. I don't know. What, <laughs> I don't exactly know what to do with the love thing. But, yeah. But I, because I think of it much more in Christian terms. Yeah. For for me, that's what resonates. Yeah. But, um, so. I don't know. I mean, I don't know with what's going to happen with people who come from um, a different part of the religion of the Christian religious spectrum. Yeah. Um, because even if you're progressive within a kind of Baptist context, it's going to have a different right. resonance. Yeah. And I'm concerned about some of the normativizing, and I think some of this comes through in the critical work of people like Finbar Curtis, who was here for a couple of years teaching, who's really asking hard questions about what is religious freedom. So for someone in Jewish studies, historically, religious freedom was about freedom from that hegemonic Christian discourse. It was about, no, we're not going to have, you know, prayers in school. Yeah. Um, no, we're not going to have the reading of uh, a Christian prayer uh, at a public meeting. Um, and and that or or sing hymns in school. And I grew up in a small town in Dover, Delaware, and my mother fought those battles, and so I know those battles well. Um, but I think the critical scholars who are asking these questions both engage that history and also recognize that now religious freedom is freedom from a kind of uh, respect for cultural difference. Yeah. And that somehow, all of a sudden, again, there's no acknowledgement of social power and historical asymmetries of power. So all of a sudden, and this is also a part of a Christian discourse where, you know, like when um, the Mel Gibson movie came out, right? People felt like they were oppressed. They were school teachers who could not share with their students the most important good news of their lives about how they had been washed in the blood of Jesus and reborn. And, you know, and that they felt oppressed because they, they wanted religious freedom. Yeah. And I think that that form of religious freedom, certainly Mike Pence, yeah. um, is a part of the, the group of folks who want to go there. So I, I'm worried about how it will play out. Um, I, you know, I certainly think that there are going to be lots of, and there usually are, even at this past AER, they're great, they're great panels, small panels with 20 people in the room where people are, you know, asking critical questions. Yeah. And that's the stuff that really matters to me. Yeah. Or publishing books like, like Finbar's and our series in North American Religion. Yeah. Like, that's really important to me, but I, so I don't know, I, I you know, I think it's, it's always... It's always a potential at the AAR. Yeah. Given this, and then I think the other problem is, is that as there are fewer jobs in the field of religious studies in general, and seminaries are in trouble, there, you know, there is a way in which some of us kind of do need to kind of work together because there, you know, there's a there's a crisis. Yeah. So. You know, I have friends who are losing their jobs at the Lutheran Seminary, losing their tenure, being asked to sign horrible contracts, 
um, that you know have them teaching more for less, and they and they're not allowed to say anything yeah. about their experience. And so you have people who are full professors with tenure who are losing their jobs. And so my heart goes out. Yeah. So I don't want to so I don't want to rule out the possibility that we have to be under this tent. But I think we have to also be just a lot more careful. Yeah. Yeah. About where some of the boundaries are. Yeah. No, I think that's right, and I think um, I think a big part of the the struggle of the big tent, I think, remains. And then it also produces, you know, panels about what do we do with the big tent. But I think you're right. The best panels at the AR tend to be twenty people in a small room in the basement of the Hilton or whatever. Um. Yeah, and <laughs> and you can have really good conversations, and you know, we go to them because it it matters to see someone in the flesh and yeah. to actually have a face-to-face conversation and then you can continue that conversation so i mean that's we have like i think now 11 books in our series in the last like six years or something and a lot of that is through the networking that happens you hear someone give a yeah. paper you talk to someone in the hallways and you know i i so i like having that venue yeah um, but I go to Jewish studies, and Jewish studies, by the way, is very careful to and very proud, the Association for Jewish Studies, to, to, to make clear that they are a professional yeah. academic association, that they are not a Jewish organization. Right. Um, and that's a real source of pride. Yeah. To And I think we have to remember that it should be a source of pride for the AR, too. Yeah. big thank you to Laura Levitt for taking time to tell that story while she was here. Um, and I want to shift gears from a senior scholar who has lots of experience at the AAR to young scholars, actually two of our undergraduate students who, rather than, t- rather than attending the large National American Academy of Religion meeting, they went to the regional meeting, the Southeastern Commission for the Study of Religion, which met in Raleigh uh, this spring. And uh, Sierra Lawson and Parker Evans both went um, to the meeting, and Parker presented a paper, and they had a really kind of interesting experience. I often tell students that what we do in our department is special. We are not representative of the whole field. And even at a regional meeting, um, they had an interesting run-in with what the larger field of religious studies looks like and how different it is from what we have here. And so I just want to play you the conversation we had and see uh, what their experience was like at their first sort of large, larger academic conference. Was this um, your, both of you, your first conference like this? Like, uh, yes, no? Um, I'd presented at a research conference for undergrads before, so this yeah. was my first conference that was like professional um, and not just undergrads. Yeah. Um, Your first religious studies conference, right? Yes. So what did you guys, ex- what did you expect? So before we talk about what happened at Sixer, what Sixer was like, what did you expect when you're like, all right, I'm going to the regional AAR meeting, Southeastern Commission for the Study of Religion. What was your expectations going into this thing? I expected a lot more people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it seemed like every face that I saw 
within the first 20 minutes of being there were the only faces I saw for the entire weekend. Um, I thought it would be a little more organized than just walking up to a table and signing your name to say you paid your registration online and getting a name tag. Um, and there was more organization that came about later in the conference, but just the, the check-in process didn't really seem like it was trying to get people to meet each other and hear about each other's work. It kind of seemed like you should come here already having made those relationships, mm -hmm. um, which as an undergrad, only knowing Parker and Dr. Finnegan, it, it was a little intimidating. What were you expecting, Parker? Um, I, I talked with some of the people that went last year to Atlanta. Um, I think Sarah Griswold and um, Anna Davis, I think, went as well, and Jared Powell. Um, and I, I wasn't—I didn't really have a sense of the of the scale, really. But I knew that there was going to be sort of uh, some. There were there were field politics that I was going to encounter. It's not like these sort of sit below the surface. Um, I mean, it's very apparent. Yeah. Um, I think as opposed to. In, in, in contrast to other departments, perhaps. Um, but I think, I mean, there's a specific set of politics that kind of has to rise to the surface um, in religious studies. Um, so what, what are those politics, as you saw them? Um, well, first I, I realized that there were conversations that I couldn't necessarily have <clears throat> with everybody, um, especially... Uh, other well, um, some professors and some some students. Um, I mean, I was I, I didn't want to step on any toes, and I was trying to be, uh, you know, just, just sort of like make the rounds at my first uh, conference and um, get to know people. Um, but I mean, some of our our basic sort of slogans I don't think would have necessarily flown if I had, uh, you know, tried to employ those in conversation or religion in culture classifications political act um, or party lines so to speak <laughs> we have party lines we do oh, wow. I think we do I mean you know it's branding it's part of branding yeah. um, uh, I think on our our travels there I mentioned to Parker the kind of Twitter war that happened last year where <laughs> Members of other departments were taking pictures of people from UA and um, t posting on Twitter saying, citizens of Alabama, this is what your tax dollars are paying for, like, are you proud of yourselves, all this stuff. And I, and I remember you were really surprised to hear that. I was. Um, but then it, 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 the politics that I think we noticed um, were not so much... Um, politics interrogating us, it was more our relationship to Dr. McKetchen and how we think about the category of religion and um, I mean even people who would you know nod to McKetchen's theory they, that's all they would do, they would nod to it and then it just continue to employ this category as if it's like a naturally occurring thing and so that was kind of interesting to me because um, the only parallel I could think of was Marx is people saying like Oh, capitalism, and then going on and using terms, um, I don't know, it was yeah. very weird. So, like, so what, um, so did you really feel, like, branded as an Alabama student? Was, like, there, like, a, <laughs> was there some sort of reputation that preceded you? When you Several of the undergraduate students that I talked to were like, oh, 
you're from Alabama, you know McCutcheon. Uh, no one ever says you know Altman. It's always you know McCutcheon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, some people, some people uh, I mentioned to Dr. I talked some Simmons. Emory people that actually knew you. Then no, I'm not, not fishing. But anyway, <laughs> we can make something up if you want. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, and I've met his kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, the students seem to respond fairly positively in the sense that, like, it's like knowing a, a celebrity. Uh, I mean, like, you know, you're not, they weren't really, they, they weren't necessarily, like, engaging with his his work. It was more like, oh, I know that my professors are and that that's a sort of, like, that's a topic of discussion. Um, however, one of the panels that I went to, um, one of the one of the presenters said, um, he was talking about like uh, reinstating the the the, uh, the category of faith in the study of religion, um, as if it had left. Um, and he said something like, uh, "McCutcheon can't be saved, but his students can." Um, so there, and 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 I I, I, I hadn't identified myself. Uh, in the room at that point, so I felt like I was, um, you know, like I was uh, spying <laughs> on this panel, um, and you know, going back to report uh, what I'd seen to the yeah. to the department. Um, yeah, and that's what uh, Dr. Lowen shared my blog post and said. Uh, UA student sleuths, the regional ADR, and at first I was like, is that a compliment, or...? Yeah, we, we should say that both of you wrote really great blog posts reporting about your experience at the conference. People should go check those out on the blog. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, I'm curious, this is sort of for both of you your first chance to see, like, the field beyond our department. Right. And, like, I try to explain to students, like, this is a very special place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is not normal. <laughs> this is a safe place. <laughs> this is a safe place. But, um, how did, how did spending a weekend you know, at this small regional conference, still, uh, still, I think, really, fairly representative of the state of the field in a lot of ways. How did that change your view of, like, the field of religious studies or the discipline or what, what goes on under the big tent label of religious studies? So, I know in my blog post, the first thing I said is that this experience allowed me to see what's happening in the field of religious studies and what is not happening. And I, the first thing that Parker and I did, we looked at the books that were for sale <laughs> and we could not find a single book that was not theology. Um, Christian oriented theology. Christ- very Christian oriented theology. And then I know I had breakfast, um, at the, for, it was like a women's group breakfast and they were just making jokes about Paul's letters and stuff like that. And I was Basically, I felt ostracized because I have taken an introduction to New Testament course, but I'm no by no means like super literate with the Bible to apply it in those kind of ways. Um, so, I don't know. I, I sat in on one panel um, looking at narratives of dystopia and utopia, and the one of the speakers was talking about um, multiculturalism, multiculturalism in a children's cartoon. Um, but it, it might have been a constraint of time or who, who, you, who knows what, but she didn't mention um, the problems that arise when you have a children's cartoon having characters from different countries that are representing only the dominant factions of those countries. Right. So um, that was the, the first time that I was like, this, they're not really thinking critically about what they're saying or or they don't have the time to expand on it yeah and then someone else in that panel 
quoted McKetchen and I actually told her she was misquoting him and that it was Bill Arnell <laughs> who the quote came from. Uh. Uh, so that, that, that really opened my eyes to how people were operating. Yeah. What are you, Park? What did you learn from this experience about the field, state of the field? Um, well, one of the, the, one of the undergraduate panels that I went to, um, I think had some of the best work. Um, of course, I, um, there were a lot of panels that I didn't see. Uh, but even though there was a use of the the term religion uncritically, I think there was, there was still um, a cl I mean uh, the the papers were uh, I guess you would say you would call them uh, ethnographies. Um, they were studies of uh, so there were several communities that these um, these presenter to, presenters had studied. Um, and even though the, they were using certain terms uncritically, like religion, there was a greater effort to show the way that certain facets of what we call religion operate uh, in daily life. Um, so there, I think that that was closer in practice to our religion and culture take, which I found very interesting because I don't know what sort of training these students were getting, but they were certainly headed in a direction that felt similar to ours. And yeah. I think that was also the reason that the undergrads had the most stimulating um, topics was because when you're not an established name in the field, you don't really have that fear of like who's going to come after you for mm -hmm. saying those things. And so I think a lot of the people who are well established in their career were so calculated in their moves that they were not really saying anything at all because they were too afraid of what people yeah. would come back um, and attack them with. And so I think that's one of the freedoms you have as an undergrad is, I mean, you, you can pretty much say whatever ideas you have and you're not going to be super heavily reprimanded because you're taking from the well of information that <coughs> you have so far. So any last thoughts about the conference or anything that big takeaways, things are going to, you going to go back to sex or next year? Yeah, I'd like to go back. I would like to go back since I'll be an MA student instead of a BA student. That's right. Um, you will be in our first class of MA students. Yeah. <laughs>
And I have presented the AAR a number of times. I am a co-chair of one of the programming units that people can submit papers to at the AAR. And um, Richard Newton uh, on Twitter, uh, go find him. If you don't follow Richard, friend of the department, um, you should find him on Twitter, uh, at SeedPods. Richard had a really good thread um, on the meeting and how we can better get uh, young scholars and, and good new work on the program. And it got me thinking about, um, I, I've talked to graduate students, uh, I've been out of graduate school for four, four or five years now, and I talk to graduate students, I'm starting to talk to graduate students more and more about their experiences now and how they can, what they need to be doing in graduate school, uh, and everyone's worried about the job market and how do you get a tenure track job and all of this stuff, and in, in all of that anxiety often gets... Uh, put on the AAR meeting, on presenting, on being there, on getting job interviews there, on presenting oneself, getting a name out there, networking, all of this. And I have advice for graduate students who want to get on the program. Um, because a lot of people think, I think, and I thought this way too, that the way you get on the AAR program is you write an awesome proposal for an awesome paper with awesome research, and the sheer power of your brilliance, your thoughts, are going to get you on the, pan on the, on the program. And that can happen, like occasionally. Um, but there's more than that, and I have three tips, three things I think undergraduate or not undergraduates, well, undergraduates too. But three things I think graduate students should keep in mind when it comes to getting on the AAR national program. One, it's a community. What I mean is the way the AAR is set up, you have these different program units with different topics, usually content-driven topics. And each of those has a steering committee and a co-chair, and there's a number of scholars who are invested in them. Uh, the example that comes to mind most obviously is, the, is RISA, Religion in South Asia, has a mailing list, has its, conference, its panels every year at the conference. It is a community. So if you want to get on the program, you need to get involved with the community. Now, this can be tricky because that involves really going to the conference before you, get, before you present at the conference. It means taking a trip to the AAR where you just go and listen and meet people. And you go to uh, the business meeting for the programming units that your research would fit. Hang out at the business meeting, listen to people's ideas, talk to people afterwards, uh, go to the panels and ask questions or go up afterwards and talk to the participants, but begin to get involved with the community life of the sort of specific subfield in religious studies of which your research contributes. Um, but that's hard because a lot of graduate students only get funding to go to conferences if uh, they're on the program already. So a lot of times you need to reach out via email, via Facebook, via Twitter to get involved in that community. Email, when the call for paper comes out, email the co-chairs in the steering committee. Ask them, say you have this idea for a paper, do they know other people so you can put together a panel instead of just submitting a single paper? Um, but you have to find a way to get invested in the community behind the programming units that your work fits in. The second thing, so it's a community, number one. Number two, it's a conversation. It's a conversation. You would, this goes with the community side. You would not walk up to strangers at a restaurant or a bar and just start talking to them about your, you know, about whatever. You might. And if you do, you're a much braver person than me. But it's a conversation, so you need to know who your conversation partners are, who are the people that you're arguing with, because it's a conversation, but it's an academic conversation, which means it's really an argument. 
and you need to be able to locate yourself within that conversation. So your proposal can't just be about how great your work is. It has to be engaging in a larger conversation and moving that conversation forward. So once you've embedded yourself in the community, you'll have a sense of the conversation, and you'll have a sense of what you can bring to that conversation, and you'll have a sense of who your conversation partners are. This is where working with other people to put together a panel proposal instead of or a roundtable, even better. I love roundtables. As a co-chair, I would rather put all roundtables and paper presentations on the schedule. Um, but this is where you can begin to build a conversation and propose a panel that is a whole conversation instead of just your individual brilliant work. So it's a community, it's a conversation, and the last thing is it's a committee, like most things in the academy, which means it's made up of a bunch of people who are super busy and doing it for free and have other things they'd rather do. Uh, as a co-chair, as someone who works with a steering committee, this is, this is how it works. And so know that. That's why panel proposals are so much more successful, because they require less work from the committee. But here's the other thing. If you show up at the business meeting and you are willing to get involved, there is a lot you can do in some of these smaller programming units. I have put people on our steering committee, graduate students and young scholars, on our steering committee because they showed up and I said, hey, you're here, you're working on this, do you want to be on our steering committee? Um, it's one of those things, so my grandfather used to say, if you show up sober, they'll make you foreman. And that's completely true about this sort of committee work. So get involved. Now, if you're on the steering committee as a graduate student, you can put yourself as a presider. If the, it, you, know, you, can, you can organize your own panel. Um, you can work to get your other graduate student network that you're building at other institutions or at your own institutions and work to get them on the program too. So it's a community. You gotta get invested in the community. It's a conversation. You gotta get, in, in, get make proposals that move the conversation forward. And it's a committee. And if you get involved, there are places for you to really make a difference. And those are my three quick tips for getting, in, getting on the program uh, at the AAR. I want to thank again Laura Levitt for talking with us about her experience at the AAR, for Sierra Lawson and Parker Evans for their, telling their story at Sexor. And um, I look forward to seeing all of you at conferences this summer and fall and we'll be back soon with another episode of Study Religion. Goodbye. Cochran. I'm a religious studies major from Atlanta, Georgia. Study Religion is a production of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Alabama. For more information on our department, go to www.religion.ua.edu or find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash rel at ua. Have a comment or question about the podcast? You can email us at religiousstudies at as.ua.edu or reach out to us on Twitter at, at Study Religion. Like to, like to see pretty pictures of historic campus buildings and squirrels? Follow us on Instagram at, at Study Religion. 
If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us in iTunes and leave us a comment and a rating. That helps other folks find the show and makes you a very giving person. Our opening and closing music is by Disparition. More info at disparition.info. Special thanks to the REL 490 Capstone Seminar for the show's introduction. Roll Tide. So I want to. So I want to um, wrap up this uh, episode. So.